Hello everyone, how are we doing? It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development, one tip at a time. Are you ready? It's time for a self-improvement sit-down. These conversations are such an honor to me. In self-improvement sit-downs, I get to chat with individuals who are changing the world and leading their industries so that we all can learn from their experience and expertise. As you probably know, the typical format of the podcast is a short two-minute personal development approach, mindset, mentality, or exercise that will help you get consistent with your personal growth. But we're saving that for tomorrow. Today's self-improvement sit-down is with an individual I have a world of respect for and who I've really come to admire. Our conversation today is centralized around philanthropy, the misconceptions we all have when it comes to how we choose to give back, and most importantly, what we can do about it as leaders. If there's a part of you that is curious to know how you can create more impact and support causes and the well-being of others in an impactful way, then this conversation is exactly for you. And let's get into it. This is Self-Improvement Sit-Down number 28 with Dan Pallotta. And we are live. Today's guest is just a brilliant mind that has a natural curiosity built into everything he does. His name is Dan Pallotta. Dan is probably best known for his TED Talk titled, The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong, which is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with more than 5 million views. But his disruption and ingenuity in the nonprofit space goes much further than that. Dan has organized AIDS bike rides, breast cancer three-day walks, suicide prevention walks, and even a cross-country bike ride in college, raising hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for charity. Dan is also a very successful author who recently released a book titled The Everyday Philanthropist that simplifies the topics he covered in the record-setting TED Talk so that everyone can make well-informed charitable decisions. Dan, first, thank you so much for everything you've done for this world. I can't wait to play a role in it myself, and thank you for making the time for this uh, conversation today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I really do appreciate it. Uh, busy man with a lot going on. There's a lot of support in important areas, and I know that you're pillar to that, I'm sure. So making my time for this, I'm really grateful. Um, but first, before we get into, you know, kind of all of this stuff that you've really done, you know, I kind of touched on it, but I want to kind of uh, pull back the layers first. So you, you went to Harvard, uh, you got into politics at a very young age, and basically you could have and have been successful in every area of your life, kind of in whatever you've chosen to do. But here you are, you choose to apply your talents in the nonprofit sector and dedicate your life to service. And I just want to know, like, what, what is it about you? Like, we need more people like that. But what is it about you that has uh, chosen that decision? Well, I, I haven't been successful at everything I've tried to do. And probably the reason, um, you know, life can happen to you accidentally. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be a a goalie in the NHL. That was all I wanted to do was be a goalie in the NHL. And I, and I was good, but I wasn't good enough for the NHL. So then I decided that I wanted to, um, I wanted to get a record deal. And I moved to California and wrote music and played in bands and played in clubs and came close, but, but it didn't happen. So I suspect that if the NHL had taken me or if um, Columbia Records had taken me, my, the path might have been different. But I think, you know, I, I grew, I was, I was five, six, seven, eight years old uh, in the 1960s growing up when John Kennedy was giving speeches and Robert Kennedy was talking about love and justice and Martin Luther King was 
um, building the civil rights movement at a young age, and, and NASA was taking human beings to the moon in this daring, impossible adventure. So those were very formative things for me, that, that notion of um, incredible, unspeakable possibility and service and social justice. And so <clears throat> I can't separate either one of those two things. You know, I think most of my work has been about liberating people in social justice work to think bigger, think bigger, think bigger. And, and I also can't separate out the fact that, that I'm gay. You know, I, I think very oddly about these things. I think in a very queer sort of way about these things. Um, you know, when you, when you question society's whole view of sexual orientation, when why is a big question for you at the age of 17 or 18, it leaks into other areas of your life. You know, well, why is this done this way? Why is that done this way? Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like a Harvey Milk standpoint, where it's like you do see something, you know, like society says one thing and kind of what I really resonate with is when they zig, you zag, you know, so like kind of understanding that there might not be a conventional route to it, but we can still get to the same uh, end result. And it's actually a really valuable perspective to do it in a different way, because then it shows that there's an open opportunity to so many different things that we've just taken for granted and assumed to be true um, in all areas of life. And that's kind of what you've done is like you've, you're starting here kind of, you know, with the unconventional route and understanding that there's a lot of kind of social justice movements that you were involved in. And then now you realize, okay, if it's possible at that level, is it also possible on the level of nonprofit work and kind of like providing for others in this world? And it's, that's beautiful how you're able to tie those two things together. You don't see them as parallel. Um, and and I, I really commend you for that. that that's incredible. And, and now kind of as we step into that nonprofit space, you know, kind of understanding that you as an individual have dedicated to something like that, you know, and you kind of see from, from like the inside out almost how it is, what, what responsibility do you feel like we all have, you know, kind of understanding your journey a little bit more, what responsibility do we have to then contribute something of our own into that space so that we can further the work you're doing and other leaders in the space? You know, I, I, I feel a sense of responsibility when I, I look at, the privilege of my life. I, I look at all of the things I have and all of the opportunity that I grew up with. And I, I look at, uh, you know, a, a starving child uh, in a developing country who had none of those advantages. I feel a natural sense of responsibility. I, I don't come at responsibility from a, a moral place. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not big on preaching. You know, it's your moral responsibility to, to do this. But I do think it's a choice, and I, I do think that um, the nonprofit sector has a has a right to take responsibility for the great social problems. It has a right to say we are going to be the leaders in ending this problem. And I think all too often we think we don't have such a right that ending hunger, ending illiteracy, poverty, injustice those are those are for government and government has to solve those problems and we can operate around the edges but it's really up to government well elon musk didn't say it's the responsibility of government to change the global autom automobile fleet from a combustion engine to an electric engine you know steve jobs didn't say it's the responsibility of government to bring friendly mobile technology to everyone and god knows those tasks 
are as big, you know, putting a, an electric car uh, in everybody's hands or a mobile phone in everyone's hands, those are as big and complex logistically as trying to feed everyone. So part of my message to the nonprofit sector has been you have a, a right to your dreams. You're entitled to dream as big as those people in this domain that you have chosen. You don't have, you know, there's, nobody has a right of first refusal. Government does not have a right of first refusal. Maybe you can lead government the way that Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry is doing. You know, if government isn't going to take the lead, then you take the responsibility. Yes, we need government resources, but you can stimulate those. That's that's so interesting because I mean even reflecting on my question I'm talking about like what responsibility do we have? I don't think it's necessarily that I think it's understanding that no one owns the sole responsibility and I think that we feel you know, Disempowered based on the fact that like oh, it, you know the nonprofit sector is doing this government is doing this You know like, you know as individuals we're like oh someone else is taking care of that and that for that reason We don't feel like we're in a position to be impactful because it's already being shuttled off to someone else yeah, and we live in, we live, we work in a particularly intellectual sector of the economy. And that's not always a good thing. And I, I think that you can be intellectually marginalized for talking about dreams. You know, dreams are silly, dreams are sophomoric, dreams are unserious. We have funders to answer to, we have new. Um, uh, models and taxonomies associated with best practices that we need to, to master. That's the really smart stuff. Um, and, and I think if you look at it objectively, a dream taken seriously, underlying taken seriously, this seemingly impossible achievement to be accomplished by this seemingly impossible date and time, those aren't sophomoric. Those are the most sophisticated things known to humanity. You look at the sophistication of the Apollo program and all of the innovation that that drove and all of the collaboration that that drove. Um, I think what's really silly and what's really sophomoric is to subjugate our dreams to our expertise that we're not capable of achieving these dreams. I think what's really silly is for grown men and women to squander this tiny, tiny little bit of time we have here on earth to make a difference on anything less than the most daring breathtaking dream we're able to dream because i'll tell you it is exhausting to think small it is exhausting to be engaged in the struggle with no resources and once you break out of that you break through that into the kind of rarefied um, air that Oprah Winfrey and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Steve Jobs and all of those people were living in life gets really alive you know it gets really exciting and that excitement infects donors and your board members you know people ask me all the time how can I get my board engaged stop boring them to death you know stop Stop working around the margins. Stop begging for money to keep your operation alive. What is the daring dream you want to achieve in the world and by when? Start speaking in the language of possibility, in the language of creation, because language creates possibility. You know, we will do the AIDS rides. Disneyland shall be built, you know. We declare independence as of July 4th, 1776. You know, the founders, they weren't passive aggressive about it. They didn't say, hey, look, you know, we, we hired some consultants and this word independence doesn't play well with the British, so don't use it. Let's just let's just see how much independence we can get away with. And I, and I think we're, 
we suffer too much from um, a kind of intellectualism in the nonprofit sector that we think is a substitute for bravery and courage and dreams, and it simply isn't. Yeah. And that kind of even references what is central to your TED talk, which is the indoctrination that we've received. You know, like we just have this default way of perceiving certain situations, specifically within the nonprofit sector, and how that then uh, becomes kind of translated and applied in the wrong ways because people are evaluating based on the wrong uh, metrics, essentially. So that, that does all come together. And amen, like everything you're saying right there about dreaming, like, hell yeah, like that's exactly what it's about. And and you're right, like people don't dare to dream. I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but it might be out of fear, it might be anxiety, it might not be out of having the resources. You know, there's all of these kind of self-imposed reasons. And something I've really been trying to embrace, which you're kind of alluding to, is this idea of why not me or why not us? You know, if this is going to be created and someone's done it before, someone's proven that they were an individual that then took an idea and created something massive about it. Like, why can't that person be me? And why can't I dream to do something of that magnitude? So I think it's beautiful that that, you know, when, especially what you're introducing in the nonprofit sector, you know, cause that's, you know, specifically your world, but how that applies just to everything that we do. Like there is disruption and innovation and connection around us. And it's a matter of tapping into that in whatever capacity, but not limiting ourselves in what we think we can settle for. It's actually dreaming and taking advantage of the time that exactly what you said, the time that we have on this earth is so finite. So it's, it's really amazing, but also it's, it's a privilege. And that's kind of something that you referenced earlier. Like it, it is this privilege that we have this ability to dream. We have our baseline needs met. You know, the fact that we're Zoom calling right now and people are listening to a podcast means that they have access to technology. You know, so like that is a privilege and something that, you know, I think is a powerful motivator for us to be able to provide that for more people so that they can also dream and kind of come into lives that are more fulfilling. And, and that's kind of, I think, the transition into your new book, uh, The Everyday Philanthropist, which is about, okay, so now we have this opportunity and we have a lot of this work that's going out there and we're in a position to support and we recognize that there's a difference in opportunity. What can we do on a general kind of average level to be able to support and be responsible when it comes to the way that we're supporting others? So would you mind kind of giving that overview and how that all comes together and kind of the privilege we have and then what we can do about it, you know, specifically as individuals. You know, I've been speaking to nonprofits for 15 years now and telling them, look, donors have it wrong. Donors are looking at overhead instead of impact. Donors are looking at your salaries instead of your dreams. And we need to change that. And I began to realize that in the same way you wouldn't expect an executive director to fill her own cavities, you know, she'd go to a dentist for that. You can't expect an executive director to be powerhouse literate on how to change a donor's mind. You need someone who does that all the time, and I do that all the time. So the, the idea with the Everyday Philanthropist was, instead of asking people to persuade donors, let me give them a tool that will do it for them. Let me give them a book that's friendly, that they can hold in their hand, that fits in their pocket, that reads in an hour, that has big clarifying graphics, that, you know, 32 little micro chapters, so that the average donor, so that your mother, your sister, your best friend, a bank teller, your dentist would want to read it. Because typically philanthropy books aren't written for that audience. And that's the audience we need to reach. So I, I wrote The Everyday Philanthropist with the idea that, look, if you work in the sector, it's great. You should read it. Yeah. But when you're done reading it, go buy a hundred of them and give them to your friends and to your donors. It's a tool that will change the way it, it will. It's designed to eviscerate their old way of thinking in a, in a way that leaves them feeling like, ah, 
I feel better about philanthropy and giving now. I want to do more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really important because when it kind of, again, when it comes to like the responsibility we feel sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking generally about people who are in the market to donate, you know, of the 2% GDP is um, you've, you've found, um, you know, when people are in market, uh, you know, there is a lot of kind of overwhelm to it being like, okay, like, what do I need to look for? Is this the right place to put it? And kind of that decision fatigue almost gets people um, away from taking action because they're just spinning their wheels trying to figure out what the best practice is. And exactly what you're mentioning is kind of the, the misconceptions that exist or the hurdles that people are, you know, kind of uh, running through uh, in order to understand how far their dollar can go. That's actually, you know, then translating to inaction, which is a big problem. So I think this is a great opportunity. If you can touch on a few of those major misconceptions, I know they're in your TED talk, but I'm sure that, you know, you've simplified them now for this book. You know, if, if someone needs to take something away from this and kind of understand those misconceptions um, in a new light, you know, kind of what are some of those key points? Yeah, well, one of them is, you know, there's this misconception that if I really want to make a difference, I do that through voting or I run for office. People don't think of charity as a domain for making a big difference. They think of it as a domain for cleansing their conscience and doing a little bit of good for someone. No, charity is a place where you can transform society, but not if you do it in an old way. Because another misconception is, well, let me look at the overhead of the charity. And the lower the overhead is, the better I know the charity is. That's absolutely backwards. That's absolutely not true. In most cases, the higher the overhead is, the more the effective the charity is. Oh, let me look at the CEO's salary. If the CEO's salary is low, I know that's a good charity. No, more likely than not, if the CEO's salary is low, that means they weren't able to hire the kind of talent that could really get the job done. I don't want my favorite charity spending any money on advertising or fundraising. That's irresponsible. Uh, they All the money should go to the cause. Well, think about that for a second. If your favorite charity can't spend money on advertising, if they can't spend it on fundraising, it means they can't find other donors. <laughs> if they can't find other donors, guess who they got to keep relying on? You. And you don't have a big enough pocketbook to solve that social problem. I guess the biggest message of the book is this. Do you want to know why charities have not solved the world's problems at the scale at which we hoped that they would? It's because that's not what we asked them to do. What we asked them to do very specifically was keep your overhead low and keep your salaries low. So guess what they did? <laughs> That's exactly what they did. And we need to move into an era where we are demanding that they solve problems, that we're demanding that they dream bigger and bigger and bigger. And we demand that they tell us what resources do you need to make these dreams come true? Because this is a time for dreaming, not, for, not a time for constraining you. Because, uh, you know, you keep people's overhead low, and that's what's going to go on their gravestone. I kept charity overhead low. But hunger rates are still high, and literacy rates are still high, and um, injustice is still rampant. But, damn it, that overhead's low. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that you do a really, I mean, it's really profound in the TED Talk, how you illustrate this idea of, like, the bake sale, you know, with a small overhead versus, you know, the big pie of let's, you know, let's give the cancer researcher $350,000 to build a fundraising department instead of letting them spend $350,000 on research. You know, it like, it's a concept that we understand that applies in the, the, the for-profit sector where it's like, hey, you put money in, you put it into this machine and it pumps more money out. Like that is return on investment. That is something that we all live by. 
but there's a different rule book that you've articulated very clearly in the different content you've created. And that just goes back to what, again, you say in the TED talk, which is kind of the Puritan beliefs that just establish the precedent of charity and how that has just been assumed to be true. And it's something that we have inherited and continue to believe. And that's what kind of the thesis of the book is. It reverses the indoctrination that has been handed down to us. And, you know, kind of the thesis of the TED talk too is about the idea that we can um, rethink those generational inheritances from a dreaming standpoint and actually, you know, present change in a different light. Yeah, I mean, why would we want to be loyal to ideas about philanthropy that were established 400 years ago? You know, that, that was a different time. There were different stresses on people, different religious beliefs, moral beliefs, everything. Um, they didn't have, you know, hundreds of millions of people dying of hunger and huge problems with illiteracy and injustice. Um, they, they, they just had their religious beliefs. And you asked earlier, why do you think the nonprofit sector doesn't dream the way Elon Musk dreams? And I think it's because, you know, the name is the no sector, the non-sector. <laughs> so dreaming means you got to say yes. You got to say yes to risk. You got to say yes to new things. You got to say yes to things that scare you. And, you know, we're hunkered down in this no mode, afraid that if we take on a dream and it doesn't work out, donors are going to crucify us. So we just need to change the way donors think about these things. And it's doable. And, and now you have some tools to do it with the everyday philanthropist and the bold training and things like that. You don't have to get tongue tied. You don't have to make the debate. Let these tools do it for you. And you can move on to the work of changing the world, which is what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important to think about kind of this systemic angle of, okay, you know, this is, again, like the indoctrination that we've been exposed to, you know, this is the way it's been, and this is how people currently perceive it. And, and I'd love to see what the opportunity is on the individual and social side, you know, because there's a lot of pressures associated with donating, you know, one of them being, oh, you know, if you share publicly that you donated a lot, then, you know, your intentions aren't pure. That's extrinsically motivating, you know? So like there's that social pressure. And then even um, kind of like you said, it's not necessarily a moral thing or a responsibility. You know, it's, it's just like, it's a privilege or a right, you know? So I feel like there is kind of a, a convoluted understanding on both sides of the equation. Um, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are specifically when it comes to the individual and how their donation habits fit into society and how that's perceived, you know, is, is there something like a, a line of thought that we could move forward with that will help so that donors feel empowered um, to contribute rather than criticized? Yeah, I think, I think contribution is a, is a lifestyle and I think it makes you feel good. And I think it creates new opportunities for the world and for society. So we don't have to look at it as this heavy moral responsibility. Look, it's just smart to make this world a better place. It's just smart to make the world um, more equal. And there are all kinds of studies now in you know, neurology that show that giving lights up the same centers of the brain as listening to music and eating chocolate. Well, we have to start to excite demand for that sort of experience in the same way we excite demand for chocolate and music with massive, massive advertising budgets. You know, we, the nonprofit sector is the part of the economy that we're counting on to build a stronger civil society. There's nobody else chartered with building a stronger civil society. And for civil society to get stronger, we need more people engaged. That means charities have to go out 
and attract people the way McDonald's attracts people and Budweiser attracts people and Disney and Apple and Microsoft. I mean, look at Times Square. Do you see an ad for Oxfam America, a giant billboard there? Do you see a giant billboard for Save the Children? No, it's for watches and luxury goods and sodas and everything. Well, if that's the kind of indoctrination that society gets, that's the kind of society we're going to have. In Charlotte, they did this big study on economic mobility. They had a big report, and on the cover they said, how do we create a community of care? As if that were an impossible question to answer. I think it's a really easy question to answer. The same way we created a community of consumption. We invested in it massively, and we continue to invest in it massively every single day, shouting at people every single way we can, buy this, buy this, buy this, this is good for you. Well, if charity has to remain silent, because we don't want it spending any money on that kind of market building, guess what? These problems are going to be around forever, and you're going to have a, a tilted society that's way in favor of consumption instead of compassion until you can correct the balance of the indoctrination. It's not going to happen by some woo-woo magical moment or some song that gets released or something, you know? You're going to have to invest money, money in building that kind of market demand for giving. Yeah. And, and coming back to like the individual level, that's exactly what you're expressing is it's a lifestyle choice. Like, yes, you see the ads and you're being bombarded by these marketing messages of like, Hey, here's materialism. You want this, you need this. And that's because we're pumping money into that sector, but you know, having yeah. the awareness and that's what this book does, I think, is it provides the awareness that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, let's take a step back and think about what you as an individual value and how can you further what you're doing with your money, what fulfills you, you know, you reference the neuroscience too. Um, you know, that like that ends up being that that's actually something that I'm extremely inspired by and something that I'm building a project around currently is how do we shift that culture from seeing the Rolex watches and the Ferraris and the beach houses? How can we turn that display of materialism and that personal validation? How can we introduce people to seeing donating to philanthropy and getting involved in charitable causes, how can that be the thing that people identify with? And I think there's a huge opportunity right now with the coronavirus and just the state of society with you know, how, you know, how these thought leaders are being perceived that you know, we can shift the culture in a really powerful way. Um, so that's exciting. Yeah, and I, I, I called the book The Everyday Philanthropist for a reason, because we think of the philanthropist as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. You have to be giving away billions. No, if you're giving out of a sense of love, um, something that you could have spent on yourself, but you're doing it, you're a philanthropist. Philanthropist means love of humanity. And so start to think of yourself that way. Pick a cause for life, and the book walks you through how to pick your cause for life, and tally over your lifetime all of the donations that you make to that cause, and research that cause, and get smarter and smarter and smarter at it, and research the organization so that you become a real expert in that cause area, and you know that you're giving to the organization um, that's gonna make the best impact on that problem, and you're giving to them in a way it's going to allow them to make that impact. So instead of telling them, I don't want any of my money to go to overhead, you might say, I want it all to go to overhead. I want you to invest it all in fundraising so that you can find more donors so that you can expand these programs that have so enamored me of you, you know? Yeah. No, it's important. It's the two sides of it. It's the first, the personal choice being like, okay, this is where we need to invest in, you know, understanding that side of it and then having that pressure on that side of the equation then encourages the nonprofit sector to react so that they can then have more of a product market fit in terms of like the donor psychology that's trying to be met. And that's how these two paths converge and 
start creating, you know, really, you know, socially impactful results. I mean, that's what it's all about. I, yeah. I'd love to wrap up with one last thought. And I usually wrap up with kind of takeaways. And I think that there's one line in the book uh, that serves as a takeaway. It is, imagine if we had a world in which everyone was aware of, active in, and contributing to the cause of their lives. That would take a big investment. And I think built into that is our our interest in dreaming, but also dreaming in the right ways. So would you mind just kind of ending with kind of telling us what that means to you and how we should take action from it? Well, imagine if you thought my life could really make a difference. I could really have an impact on the lives of others. And I'm going to commit to that over the course of my life. I'm going to be a real philanthropist. Philanthropy is, even though I'm only 27 years old, even though I work at a grocery store, I'm not Bill Gates, or I, you know, I'm a teacher or whatever, I'm going to be a philanthropist. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do research and I'm going to do giving and it's going to be part of my lifestyle. Apple keeps telling me, this is going to feel so good on your wrist. This Apple watch, you're going to love having it on your wrist. You know what? It can't compare to having philanthropy be an integrated part of your lifestyle. Yeah, it's almost like philanthropy is a title that we all have acknowledged at some point. It doesn't need to be like philanthropy is an identity. And I think that's part of the shift is getting people to feel empowered with what they have versus responsible to donate to match the the traditional definition that people are operating under. So I, I think that's a really, really powerful thought. And again, something that I'm inspired and currently working on rerouting. So I'd, I'd love your support in that when the time is right. But for now, Dan, this is, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm, I mean, just understanding how you have been able to rewrite a lot of these thought patterns. And like, like we keep saying the word indoctrination, but that really is what it is. It's just these assumed beliefs, how, we, how you've single-handedly been able to rewrite that empowers me to dream in a similar way so I can rewrite the next step of it. And then someone else will rewrite the next step of it. And that, you know, 50 years down the, the road, when the compound effect has rippled into, you know, millions of people, now we're looking at a world that is equal and supporting everyone equally. So that's just an inspiring um, nugget that you've given me. And I just want to thank you for that. You're welcome, Brian. Thank you for staying. And keep thinking big. You're, you're a wonderful spirit. And I look forward to hearing the things you're going to accomplish in the world. So what did you think? It was a technical conversation for sure, but I think it's important that we all have an awareness and appreciation for the ways we can support each other. In my opinion, the very fact that we can share this technology and take the time to learn demonstrates just how privileged we are and the opportunity that we have to share it with others. As for the conversation itself, we talked about dreams and with the limited time we have in life, we need to dream big and encourage others to dream big because it's through realizing these big dreams that we can enact personal and systemic change. We talked in particular about some of the misconceptions many people have about the nonprofit sector. That limiting overhead is not the best way to determine how efficient a nonprofit is. That a CEO salary is an indication of their talent level and not mismanagement of funds. And that not all money donated should go to the cause if the nonprofit wants to serve the community to the best of its abilities. If you want to be more informed when it comes to charitable giving and best practices, I highly suggest you read Dan's new book, The Everyday Philanthropist, which is just a short and simple rule book that breaks everything down for you into easy terms. A link to buy it is included in the description for this episode. 
And also be sure to watch his record-setting TED Talk, The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong, which is linked as well. That'll do it for this one. Thank you for your time and attention, and be sure to subscribe if you want to continue exposing yourself to new areas of personal growth. Thank you again. This is Self-Improvement Daily.